0: This scripture is from John 19 verses 1 to 16. Please stand for the reading of God's word. Then Pilate took Jesus and flogged him, and the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and arrayed him in a purple robe. They came up to him and saying, "Hail, King of Jews!" of the Jews and struck him with their bands. Pilate went out again and said to them, see, I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no guilty in him. So Jesus came out wearing the crown of fur and the purple robe. Pilate said to them, behold the man, when the chief priests and the officers saw him, they called out, crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. The Jews answered, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die, because he has made himself the son of God. When Pilate heard this statement, he has even more effort. He entered his headquarters again and said to Jesus, Where are you from? But Jesus gave him no answer. So Pilate said to him, You will not speak to me? Do you not know that I have, the, I have authority to release you and authority to crucify you? Jesus answered him, you would have no authority over me at all, unless it had been given you from above. Therefore, he would deliver me over to you as the greater sin. From then on, Pilate sought to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you are not seizure friend. Everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar." So when Pilate heard these words, he moved Jesus out and sat down on the judgment seat at a place called the stone pavement and in Aramaic Gabbatha. Now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. It was about the sixth hour. He said to the Jews, Behold your king, they cried out. Away with him, away with him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, Shall I crucify your king? The chief priests answered, We have no king but Caesar." So he delivered him over to them to be crucified. This is God's word.
1: Thank you, Kyle, for reading. And thank you, Pastor Nathan, for sharing about the ministry. It's amazing to hear how God is at work there in Haiti. Let's pray together. <clears throat> Father, give us insight into your word this morning. Give us the eyes to see to see and the ears to hear that your kingdom is better than any other. Help us, Lord, to praise and proclaim you as our king. And we ask all this in the name of Jesus the one who has been exalted and who has been given a name above every other name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that you are Lord. Amen. Well, keep your fingers open there to uh, John 19, as we continue to look at the passage. And three words that capture the content of our passage today is king, kingdom, and compromise. Now, when I say the word compromise, what comes to mind for you? Perhaps you think about marriage and the age-old cliche that marriage is all about compromise. Or maybe you think about politics. You know, many of us... I think can agree that it's generally good when opposing parties reach a compromise. Otherwise, nothing gets done. And while those those examples can be fine examples of compromise, there's a dark side to compromise also. And it's this negative aspect of compromise that is addressed in our passage today. When people compromise their character to get what they want. And it's a problem which stings most when the people who compromise are in authority. Think of an instance in which you looked up to a leader who was later discovered to have done something immoral and attempted to cover it up so they could retain their position and influence. That, unfortunately, is the blueprint of compromise that has been observed over and over and over again. This sinful compromise is part of the human condition which is demonstrated in our passage through Pilate and the chief priests, a problem which is only remedied by Christ, the true and better king. And today there's four parts to the passage I want to quickly look through, and I've entitled them like this. Verses 1 to 5 is the confirmation of the king. The confirmation of the king. Verses 6 to 7 is the clash of kingdoms. The clash of kingdoms. And verses 8 to 11, the conversation with the king. Conversation with the king. And lastly, verses 12 to 16, the compromising of kingdoms. So let's get into it with our first section here verses 1 to 5, the confirmation of the king. At the end of chapter 18, Jesus mentions something relevant for chapter 19. In verse 36, he says, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting, and I might not be delivered to the Jews. That I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not of this world. What's important to note is what Jesus was teaching in chapter 18 is that his kingdom is not of the world, In chapter 19 is the demonstration of this teaching, where ironically, the royalty of Christ is confirmed by Roman hands. Pilate and the soldiers sought to satisfy the crowd by beating Jesus in order to show them that this man was no threat. And I know it's hard for us to grasp right, as Christianity as we know it in the world today, but in the eyes of the Romans, this controversy over a Jewish man was regarded as a Regional religious dispute. The Roman Empire was huge, and Israel was small. A little place that was historically troubled by war and revolution. So there's a sense in which this controversy about Jesus wouldn't be sounding off alarms in the Roman Empire. At least not yet. Additionally, the Romans had no problem accepting foreign gods or foreign divine men. So when Jesus is brought before Pilate, it's seen as a distinctively Jewish issue. And with that in mind, what the Romans attempt to do in verses 1 to 5 is multi-purposed. They want to teach Jesus a lesson. This guy's been causing trouble. They want to appease the bloodlust of the mob that wants to kill Jesus. And lastly, they want to show the crowd how unimpressive this person is and this whole situation is. And to do all of this, The Romans humiliate Christ. And it's in the details of Christ's humiliation as a man that we see Christ's confirmation as the king. The soldiers crown him, dress him, flog him and call him king. And to top it all off, Pilate brings him out before the Jews and declares, Behold the man. Calling him a man is purposeful. Pilate presents this bruised and bloodied person, mockingly dressed in royal garb, and plainly says, here's the man, here's the guy you're so worried about. We just beat him up and humiliated him. Don't you see how insignificant he is? And the whole approach is distinctly political, right? Pilate wants to get the mob off his back. He has twice stated he thinks Jesus has no guilt. But he has no problem flogging Jesus if it means he can move on from the whole scenario. And we'll get to the crowd's response in a minute. But before we get to that, appreciate this. You and I have the advantage to read this text in light of the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the Old Testament. The Romans, in ignorance, sought to humiliate Christ as a mere man by mocking the idea of his kingship. But what you and I can see is that in humiliating Christ, they prove him to be king. The proof being in the prophecy. In Isaiah 53, we read of the suffering servant, a descendant of King David, who was spoken to be God's unique servant king who would atone for the sins of God's people. In John 19... Is fulfillment of the servant's sufferings. Listen to this verse from Isaiah, chapter 53, verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth, like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shears is silent. So he opened not his mouth. He was oppressed and afflicted. We'll reference Isaiah again as we continue to make our way through the passage. But for now, note this. In flogging Jesus, the Romans have fulfilled prophecy. Far from discrediting Jesus as an insignificant commoner who is caught up in some religious controversy, they have confirmed that this man is the long-awaited descendant of David, the king who would suffer for his people. That's the point of the first five verses. Jesus is the promised king. Jesus is the promised king. Of course, the chief priests and officers, the people who should be most familiar with books like Isaiah, do not recognize the prophecy. Instead, they seek to get what they want. And a clash of kingdoms unfolds as they go back and forth with Pilate. Let's look at verses 6 and 7. The clash of kingdoms. So prior to John 19, we've already read of the intent to kill Jesus in the Gospel of John. For example, right after Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead, many Jews gathered together to figure out how to kill Jesus. The difference is in John 19... In verse 6, we get the first explicit mention of crucifixion. And it's not merely mentioned. This is no mere suggestion. The grammar is clear. This is a demand. The chief priests know exactly what they want, and they boldly cry out for it. Pilate, of course, aware of what's going on, can see that this crowd doesn't care whether he finds Jesus innocent or not. They want Jesus crucified. And the only way they'll get crucifixion is if Pilate makes it happen. And I've called this the clash of kingdoms because the chief priests want Pilate to use his political authority in order to support their religious authority. By demanding crucifixion, the chief priests are telling Pilate how to do his job, all because Jesus threatens the status quo, their religious kingdom. Pilate initially lays out his stance and says, if you want crucifixion, you can go and do it yourselves. Remember, Pilate is technically the one in charge here. The Jews lived in subjection to Rome, not the other way around. But here's the point. Both Pilate and the chief priests belonged to little kingdoms where they each wielded authority, kingdoms where there were certain ways of doing things. And both of their kingdoms are being threatened, all because of Jesus. Of course, the threat for the chief priests is most obvious in verse 7. In this exchange between Pilate and the crowd, the Jews finally tell Pilate what they're so upset about. And we got a glimpse of this back in John 5, where again, we read of the Jewish intent to kill Jesus. Listen to this. This is from John 5. He was calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. And according to the law, making yourself equal to God is blasphemy. And blasphemy is worthy of death. And so on one level, you can understand the logic, right? They have a law. The law was broken. Consequences should follow. But they've got it all wrong the Jews were expecting a conquering, powerful, triumphant messiah who would mightily topple the Roman government and reclaim Israel. And when they encounter Jesus and see he's none of those things, they cannot accept that he is the promised king. They're unwilling to entertain the idea that he might actually be the Son of God. Which is important. Because if Jesus is the son of God, no laws are being broken. Well, since they're unwilling to accept him as king, they rightly recognize that if they don't do something about this Jesus, he's going to mess up their religious establishment, their kingdom as they know it. And so they bring him to Pilate to get Pilate to do their dirty work. A clash between Pilate and the priest's. All right, we're moving quickly, but let's look at the third section, the conversation with the king, in verses 8 to 11. So there's a lot of interesting things we could say, but I want to focus on verses 10 and 11. After asking Jesus the question, where are you from? Jesus responds with silence. And this is understandably offensive to Pilate. Pilate is the Roman authority who just had Jesus beaten and humiliated, and his life is hanging by a thread. Like, how are you not going to talk to me? I'm the only thing standing between release and crucifixion. But again, in light of Isaiah, we can see what's going on here. Listen again to verse 7. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent. So he opened not his mouth. His silence, Jesus' silence, is not explained by fear or arrogance. His silence is prophetic. And because it is prophetic, it is further confirmation that he is the long-awaited king. Look at the first half of verse 11. You would have No authority over me at all, unless it had been given you from above. Jesus, in this verse, is affirming that the chief priests who arrested him and brought him over to Pilate have no authority over him. Pilate, who had him flogged and mocked, has no authority over him. Even as he sits there, where his life hangs in the balance Pilate has no authority over Jesus, and even if we were to affirm that Pilate has some semblance of authority over Jesus, it would be a secondary authority. Yes, Jesus sits under judgment of Pilate. Yes, he will ultimately face crucifixion per Pilate's orders, but all of it falls under the purview of God's control. Everything that is taking place is happening according to the plan and purposes of God. So when it gets down to it, here's what we can confirm, what we can affirm in all of this. Jesus, as king, is in control. Jesus, as king, is in control. And this fact of God's control is substantiated by the rest of chapter 19. Here's where we'll spend our time. A little more of it, at least. Verses 12 to 16, the compromising of kingdoms. Verse 12 through 16 is the climax of two kingdoms clashing, the result of which is massive compromises on both sides. Compromises which send Jesus to the cross. And we will take these in order, starting with Pilate. Remember, up to this point, Pilate has publicly, clearly stated that he finds no guilt in Jesus. And in verse 12, we read that he sought to release Jesus. But there's a disconnect. How can it be that Jesus, who is publicly declared innocent three times, still ends up being sent to the cross? The answer is compromise. The crowd was able to manipulate the governor with two statements in verse 12. Let's look at the first. First saying, if you release this man, you are not Caesar's friend. By saying this, the crowd threatens Pilate's political aspirations and position. Contextually, the title friend of Caesar carried significance during this time period. To be a friend of Caesar meant you were favored by the emperor. The crowd, aware of this, weaponized the designation to say, if you release this man, then you might as well give up every attempt to be in the emperor's good graces. But that's just the first statement. The second statement drives the threat even further, saying everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. In essence, not only would you dash any hopes of being in the good graces of the emperor, if you release Jesus, you will actually be in opposition to the emperor because you would be his ally. And being complicit in insurrection of the emperor will no doubt result in serious consequences. So Pilate, who has authority as a Roman governor, compromises when he permits injustice to go on in order to keep his post. Think about how terrible this is. He is willing to execute Jesus if it means keeping his job. And what does that tell us about the kingdom, the political world that Pilate belongs to? It tells us that this this kingdom is corrupt, if you live under a rule and reign of leaders who can be coerced into killing innocent people, that is not a kingdom you want to belong to. But Pilate is not alone in his sin. We need to consider the chief priests as well. In verse 15, the Jews crowd a second time, demanding that Christ be crucified. Pilate, in turn, responds to their demand with a humiliating question. Shall I crucify your king? The humiliation this time being directed at both Jews, the Jews and Jesus. Yes, the Jews have coerced Pilate to this point, but Pilate can mockingly address the Jews and essentially say, This person you are sending to be killed is the best king you'll ever get. But again, Pilate spoke better than he knew. Pilate, intending to mock the Jews and Jesus, again confirms Jesus' kingship through humiliation. But what's telling about this interaction is not that subtle jab. Pilate levies at the Jews and Jesus, but the response that the chief priests give. At the end of verse 15, it says, the chief priests answered, we have no king but Caesar. And here is a deep irony the chief priests brought Jesus before Pilate on false charges, false charges of blasphemy. Now the chief priests themselves commit blasphemy when they affirm that they have no king but Caesar. They should have known God alone was to be the king the chief priests were to swear allegiance to. So the same people who cared so much about the law break the law by rejecting God's kingship for Caesar's. Now what does that tell us about their kingdom, their religious world that the chief priests belong to? It tells us also that their kingdom is corrupt. If you live under the leadership of people who can pick and choose what religious laws they uphold and break, that is not a kingdom you want to belong to, where the leaders are always right and mobs rule the day. So now we see this parallel. Right Just as Pilate compromised himself politically, therefore undermining his political kingdom. So too, the chief priests compromised themselves religiously, undermining their religious kingdom. But we shouldn't be so quick to say, you know, those people are idiots. We can do way better. I suspect many, if not all of us, can recall an instance. In which we have witnessed someone compromise their character to get what they want. It can look like cheating on an exam to get the good grade, right? It can look like undermining a coworker to keep a position or to move up. However, large or small, we have witnessed compromise in others, but not only have we witnessed it in others, if we're honest, we have all compromised ourselves at one point or another. To bring this in one step closer, we can think of our life as our kingdom. And just like Pilate and the chief priests, when our kingdoms are threatened, we can end up compromising. And in doing so, in doing so, we demonstrate that our little kingdoms under our rule can tolerate all kinds of sinful attitudes and behaviors so long as we get what we want. Lying is easy if you want to be right all the time. Making fun of people is easy if you want to be the funniest person around. Neglecting responsibilities is easy if you want to have fun all the time. Villainizing everyone who disagrees with you is easy if you want to be the hero. It can be hard to stomach, but we are far more like Pilate and the chief priests than we would care to affirm. That's our problem. Within our worlds, within our own little kingdoms, we compromise. At some point, to get what we want, we do what we shouldn't. And this is why John 19 is so important. The solution is not behavioral change. The problem of human sinfulness, this inward disposition to tolerate compromise, cannot be incrementally reformed by pure reason and human will. The solution is not reform, but revolution, a spiritual coup, if you will, meaning we need to be dethroned as would-be kings to make room for the true king, not just any king, but the king who did not compromise, the king who brings us into a better kingdom. Something made possible only through the king's cross. Look at verses 13 and 14 with me. In verse 13, we're given extra details that pull us into the narrative. Pilate brings Jesus out, sits him down, and Pilate takes his position on the judgment seat to make an official decision. And as this is being described, we are given a detail concerning timing in verse 14, where it says, now it was the day of preparation of the Passover. A preparation which included the slaughtering of unblemished lambs for the Passover feast, a feast which remembered, as Bruce touched on The deliverance from Egypt that God accomplished when the Israelites were told to mark the doorposts of their homes with the blood of lambs, which protected their firstborn sons and ultimately led to their freedom from Pharaoh. The significance of this detail at this moment is to recognize a parallel. While the lambs of Passover are being sacrificed in preparation, so too Jesus, the better lamb, is being prepared for sacrifice on the cross to atone for the sins of all his people, not only sons. And again, recall Isaiah 53, verse 7, a repeated prophecy. He was oppressed, he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter. Like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In John 19, we see that compromise came at a cost. But sinful compromise has been occurring since Genesis 3. This is an old problem. And God, being rich in mercy, was not content to let corruption go unhindered. Christ went to the cross to pay the penalty of sin for his people. That is the sort of king he is who despite his people's insurrection works on their behalf to redeem them. This truth is beautifully spoken of in Colossians and I appreciate how the NLT puts it for all the NLT fans out there. Verses um, chapter 1, verse 13 and 14. For he, for God, has rescued us From the kingdom of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of his dear son, who purchased our freedom and forgave our sins. There is no other leader, no other person, no other king who could do this for us. Jesus is the true and better king. And with all this in mind, there's two things for us to consider. First, we have to ask the question. Is Christ your king? Is Christ enthroned over your life? And this question is for everybody, Christian or non-Christian. Submitting to Christ as the Lord over your life, in one way, sure, it can describe conversion, that moment or progression where you recognize Jesus as your king, the person who bore the penalty of your sin on the cross. In the second way, Submitting to Christ as Lord over your life can be regarded as a daily practice. Friends, I think we can all agree, it is hard to give up control. Amen? It is hard to give up control, to say, God, I'm going to do what you ask of me, not what my heart wants most. It is uncomfortable to come to terms with the ways we compromise. It is a challenge to live in a way that, it, 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 that is in accordance to God's kingdom, not our own nor someone else's. Yet here is the beauty of God's grace in Jesus. While we fail to live perfectly, while we attempt to live by God's standard as part of His kingdom, there is assurance in the fact that His kingdom does not rise or fall on our efforts The kingdom was inaugurated by the king, and it will continue into eternity because of the king. Truly, Jesus is the better king of a better kingdom. Second, part of what it looks like to live under the rule and reign of Jesus is to make much of the king. The Romans unknowingly confirmed Christ's royalty. Today, you and I, we do in confidence what the Romans did in ignorance, proclaiming the king, calling others to behold the king, herald the king. That is what we're called to do. And we do this not only because we're told to, but because we want to, we should want to. If you have lived long enough to know what life with Christ as king is like, you know that it is better. Belonging to his kingdom is better. If you know you're guilty of compromising to get what you want and have received forgiveness of sins, then you've experienced the joy that comes with that forgiveness. If you have lived long enough to be able to compare how life was like before and after knowing Christ, then you have reasons to proclaim the king. Many, I would think. Now, to close, I want to talk to you about a song that beautifully captures some of what we've been talking about. And it's a song that it's itself went through transformation. It's called Paradise. It was originally written by this artist named Jeremiah. And the song is really a testament to what his life is like when he's the king of his kingdom. He pridefully talks about all the vain pleasures he consumes without restriction, as you could guess, women, drugs, money, you name it. And reflecting on his life, the refrain of the song that he sings is this, oh, I knew life would be all right, but who could have known it'd be this good? Oh, they tell me it gets better, 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 better. This is more than life. This is paradise. Well, the Sunday service choir takes this song and flips it on its head. And if you haven't heard this song, please hear this song. Not right now, but look it up. Sunday service choir, paradise. And thank me later. <laughs> the choir takes this song and flips it to say, look what life's like under the king, in his kingdom. And again, if you have been forgiven of sin, if you recognize that Christ went to the cross for your sin, This song hits so different. Man, I wasn't ready for this. If you, like me, can reflect on your life before Christ was your king and you know you've compromised, this song is so sweet. It's so sweet. I'm going to try and say it for you. (laughs) Alright, can't look at you guys Just going to have to read this (laughs) Um, Here's the lyrics It says, oh We knew life would be (laughs) alright But who could have known It would be this good Lord, it gets better, 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 better. Give your life to Christ. He'll give you paradise. Man, I probably should have rehearsed this. (coughs) Oh, that's what they tell us to do in seminary, you know? Rehearse it so this part doesn't happen here. This refrain captures what life is like under God's kingdom, with Christ as king. Yes, there is heartache. There is trouble. But if Christ is your king, despite all the trials of a broken world, you can proclaim, life is better with Christ as my king. Let's do that, shall we? Proclaim the king of a better kingdom. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for suffering for us. For being mocked and beaten and bruised for us. Thank you for not compromising, for not caving in despite the affliction and oppression you experienced. Thanks to you, we have forgiveness of sin and citizenship, belonging in your unfailing kingdom. Thank you, Lord. You are our king, and we want to make much of you. We pray all of this